uh, and this is a series we've called Starting Point. Uh, if the word series is a little bit of an odd word to you, uh, really all we've done is just unpack one thought, and it's a thought we've been unpacking over the last three weeks now, and we're going to continue to unpack up until next Sunday. Uh, and the thought is this, what is the starting point uh, for Christian faith? What is the starting point of your faith journey? And the question we've been asking is this question of who is Jesus? And that to understand Jesus, you must actually first understand what he did and why he did it. That was part one uh, only two weeks ago. Last Sunday, we actually jumped into part two and we looked at this idea that Jesus was actually the climax of God's rescue mission. This rescue mission to actually save us from our sins. Every rescue mission has an end goal in mind and God's end goal Uh, that he had in mind for humanity is for us to be free from sin and actually live in perfect relationship with him. But what does that look like? What does living in perfect relationship with God look like? Well, it looks like heaven. When we hear this word uh, heaven, a lot of thoughts might come into your head as to what heaven might look like. Uh, The question we're going to be unpacking tonight is is what is, uh, what's the price? What's the price of admission to get to heaven? I mean, if if God is really in control of this whole operation, it would have been nice to know how we actually get in to heaven. It would have been nice to have something really explicitly clear to give give us a heads up on how this whole heaven thing works or else it's kind of like running a race where you don't know where the finish line is. It's kind of like running a race and not knowing the distance. It's like trying to study for something but not knowing what you're actually meant to be studying for. The crazy thing is this, because Google told me this week that the mortality rate for humans is 100%. And according to statistics, that's very high. Um, so in light of that, maybe, maybe you actually never really uh, had to think or even thought about what happens post this whole life fraternity thing. Because you've been preoccupied with everyday life. There's things that you have to get done. You haven't really had time to worry about this idea of heaven. But then every now and again, we see tragedies on the news. We see things or we hear things or we experience things where we or a loved one has a health scare or even passes, we are confronted. And when that happens, when that happens, we mentally seek to hold on to some kind of truth in the world around us to reassure us. I mean, if, if we're going off this idea that only good people go to heaven, which, which seems fair, I mean, if we break a law, there's, there's consequences with that. If we're not good, bad things generally uh, come out of it when it comes to the law. But at the same time, if we do well at a job or even throughout high school, if we do something well, we often get rewarded. But is it true? Is, is it the fact that only good people get into heaven? And, and you've got to hope if good people are going to heaven... If this is the system, then, then what the heck does good enough actually look like? What does good enough actually look like in light of the standard to get into heaven? A famous philosopher and a famous a lyricist once said that nobody's perfect. I've got to work it again and again till I get it right. Uh, that was Hannah Montana. But if there was a connection between what you do and where you will end up, if you can't say you are perfect, can you really say you are good enough? Are you good enough for heaven? How would you know you were good enough? How would you measure that? What's the standard? How much is it? How much would you have to work and work till you get it right? Because for some of us, if we were asked by an angel at the gates of heaven, who I can only assume will be someone like a Meryl Streep, a Beyonce, or an Oprah Winfrey, if they were to ask you why you should be let in, maybe for some of us, we'd start to get a little bit flustered. 
Because you're like, is this enough? Have I actually really done enough in my life? So we'd, we'd whack up a, a pre-made PowerPoint presentation with all your career accolades, all your successes across your life and your relationships, all these proud moments like badges. And some of us would be quick uh, to mention that we'd been baptized as a baby, that we went to 75% of the Sundays at the church that we were attending. Maybe we would mention that we were generous with our money. We could show the stats that we were able to raise our kids in a Christian home, that we tried to teach them good morals, that we did our fair share of devotional time with the fact that we at least owned a Bible. Maybe you briefly visit the Ten Commandments and you'd go through them and say, well, listen, Meryl, I haven't stolen. I didn't kill anyone in my time. I didn't covet the neighbor's wife. There was no coveting in that way. At the same time, maybe you just freak out and you're just starting to sing Amazing Grace, but you only know the first verse and you don't know the rest of it. So you're completely flustered and you're doing everything you can to try and prove yourself. Well, well for some of us, while waiting in this line, we're looking ahead and we're really thinking, thinking flip, oh, I should have worked harder. Like I felt like I was relatively good, but good gravy. If Meryl gets out my folder of sins and mistakes here, I'm in a lot of trouble. Because there are some things that I wouldn't be proud of. There are some things that I'm not proud of. There are some things that I have done where I've ended up hurting myself or hurting other people. There are some things in that folder that point back to when I ruined my career or thought I ruined my career. When I ended up hurting people that were close to me, my friends, my parents, there are things in there that ruined my relationships. There are things in there that would have caused me a lot of anxiety, that caused me a lot of stress, a lot of guilt and a lot of shame. There were times I told myself myself, I should have had more self-control. I told myself that I'd never do that again, that I would never put myself in that same position. I would never hurt him. I'd never hurt her like that again. I told myself I would be better because I know better. But I fell short again. So, what's the price of admission to heaven? How can I actually go about measuring myself? What's the standard? What's the cost? What's the price? And to answer the question tonight, I want to bring you into this letter uh, that this guy Paul wrote to an early church back in Ephesus. And this guy Paul that we've been looking at over the last couple of weeks now He's a pretty impressive story in himself because he was a guy that once went around killing Christians and then became one himself. And as he writes this letter, he comes with a unique lens of what it actually means to be in relationship with Jesus because he was one of the people that encountered him. And Paul writes this early, uh, this church, uh, this letter, sorry, to the early church. And this church is made up of both Jewish Christians and also Gentile believers. And the Jewish Christians were very traditional in their faith. They were the chosen people of God from what they knew. And at the same time, the Gentile believers kind of represented this brand new Jesus movement that was spreading across the world. And the Gentile uh, believers at this point, there was this ethnic tension uh, going on between both the Gentiles and the Jewish Christians. Uh, Because the Jewish Christians, they were God's chosen community. And the Gentiles were very much seen as a minority. This was the tension. And and the Jews actually went about circumcising themselves to identify as part of the body of God. So you have the Jews kind of running around with scissors, pointing to the Gentiles, telling them, this is how you need to be going about things. And meanwhile, the Gentiles, they're like, they're freaking out. They're telling them, first, listen, stop, stop running around with scissors. Dangerous, number one. Point two, what did God tell you to do? You sure he didn't tell you to cut off your skin? Like, what's going on there? Like, 
They're freaking out. But at the same time, Paul is trying to bring a clarity about what it means to be in relationship with Jesus, what Jesus has done, how they can go about living in community with one another, but also who this Jesus character is, what he has done and why he has done it. And he comes with this unique lens, explaining the price of admission to heaven to a group of believers that were trying to figure out if they were ever disqualified from ever entering heaven in the first place. Here's how Paul goes about painting the picture. He starts with this. He says to them, once you were dead because of your disobedience and your many sins. Dead, not not physically dead. What Paul is writing about is spiritually dead. Last week, we looked at this word sin because it's odd. We identify that sin is more than just a mistake, or sin is more than just our mistakes or our series of mistakes throughout our life, that being a sinner is actually someone who knows better but does it anyway. And if you're a sinner, then you know that sin ruptures our friendships. Sin ruptures our relationships and with others and with God. At the end of the day, you're freely given this gift of life. The fact that you were born into this world makes you a living miracle in itself. But with this gift that we were given, and with the mistakes that we made not just once, the mistakes that we made with intention and with purpose, we often put ourselves in a spot where we hurt ourselves or we hurt others. We do damages to ourselves that we didn't necessarily mean. We put ourselves in this spot where we try and make up for our mistakes by covering things. We put ourselves in a position where we burn others and burn ourselves and we end up tearing apart our relationships in ways that we never intended to in the first place. We try and get ourselves out of this cycle of things that we never intended to put ourselves into in the first place. We realise the more that we push back on ourselves to solve our own problems, the more that we do things to try and save ourselves from making mistakes that we know we will make again, we put ourselves back in this place, back in this cycle where we're at point one, trying to make up for all the things that cost hurt, cost, that cause guilt in our relationships with others and with God. And Paul paints this picture of this disobedience this word of sin and what it looks like because it puts ourselves in a, in a spot where we are broken, not just physically, but spiritually, where we can try and cover things as much as we want and mask it up as much as we want, but on the inside, we are broken. And Paul writes on, that even uh, because of our sin, that we're separated from God, that, that the author and the giver of life, that being separated from the giver of life ultimately leads to this physical death. And, and you want to take this gift to a birthday party, let alone to heaven. So why on earth would something like this, being admitted to heaven, why would anyone let that in? Who would let this in to heaven? But Paul throws in a word that changes the game completely, and it's one word, and the word is this, but. But. But this is what was. Something has changed. But God is so rich in mercy and he loves us so much that even though we were dead because of our sins, he gave us life when he raised Christ Jesus from the dead. But he loves us so much that even though, even though you play that comparison game with yourself where you put yourself in a place of trying to figure out if you were good enough, 
if you are better than okay with your friends, with your mates, with your family, with the colleagues that you work alongside of, with the people in your life that actually mean so much to, do, to you, even though you put yourself in this comparison game of trying to prove yourself to them, try and prove yourself to other people that you are better, that you are the best, and you do it at the cost of dragging others down so you can push yourself up, even though you play this comparison game with yourself. He still loves you so much. Even though you can get angry at yourself for saying what you said, for putting words out into the, get putting and talking to people about other people through gossip and all the rest, even though you put yourself in a position where you feel like you've let down your family, where you feel like you've let down your children, he loves you so much that even though you blame others, even though you blame others and point the finger when you know it was you that made the mistake, but it is so much easier to point it back to the people around you. He loves you so much, even though you made a complete fool of yourself at work, even though you made a complete fool of yourself of yourself in your last relationship, in your marriage, all at the cost of your wrong doings. He loves you so much. Even though at times you find yourself in your friendship circles or even in your family, you find that the people around you don't understand you. And at times you don't even really understand yourself or why you do things the way you do. Even in times when you get caught out and, and though you're not physically alone but you feel lonely, he loves you so much. And even though we were in the wrong, even though we were the ones who had done wrong by God, even though we had done nothing to earn his love, he sent his one and only son to die on the cross for us, to save us from our sin. And Paul goes on to make this statement, and he really punctuates and puts an exclamation point, literally, to cement and make it crystal clear. This is what he writes. He says, it is, by, it is only by God's grace that you have been saved. It's only by God's grace that you have been saved. And you know this. You, you know you can't save you. That the mistakes that you made, that you know that you can't correct for yourself. We tend to make more mistakes. And, and the more we try to correct ourselves, no matter how talented we are, how gifted we are, how good we are in our friendships and in our relationships. You can't save you. And Jesus knew this, but he didn't want that for you. So he came down. He rode himself into the mess. He came to earth and he died for us. He died for you. Because while you can't save you, he could and he did. By dying on the cross for you, not for you, not because of anything we had done, but because he loves you unconditionally. Paul goes on to explain what our future now looks like because of what Jesus has done for us. He writes on, For he has raised us from the dead, along with Christ, and seated us with him in the heavenly realms, because we are united with Christ Jesus. United with Christ Jesus. In other words, this is the future of anyone who places their faith, anyone who places their trust in Jesus. And if it wasn't clear enough already, Paul goes on to restate and summarize his point. He says, God saved you by his grace when you believed. And you can't take credit for this. It is a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done. So no one can boast about it. Then he hits church emphasis with this, for we are God's masterpiece. 
He's created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. When Paul writes, so none of us can boast about it, what he's saying is this is the reason why we can do good things he planned for us. That there's a crucial distinction here about who we are and how we are to live. We are not saved by our good works. We are not saved by the things that we do or may do. We're not saved by things that we feel will make us good enough. We are saved for good works. And the good that we do is nothing to brag about. He saves us so that he could give us a new future. If we were to rewind, if we were to take a step back, go back to this question of what's the price of admission? The answer is, and the truth is, nothing. Jesus has already paid the price. He freely gave his life for you to set you free. All you have to do is place your faith in him. Maybe you still have some pushback because you still remember what that person said to you when you are in primary school doing RE. You still remember some things where people said, well, the Bible says this. Maybe the pushback you're facing is, well, what about all the rules? What about all the commands? Because some of that surely, some of that still would disqualify me or disqualify you. And in light of that, the rules are there for your direction and the rules are there for the protection of your life and your relationships. Your heavenly Father has a hope, has a plan, has a future for your life. He wants the best for your life. That's why he died for you, because he loves you and he wants the best for you. The rules aren't a checklist to get into heaven. They're a roadmap to guide you towards God's plan for your life. But his life... His life, his love, sorry, for you is not earned by what you do. Being an unbeliever doesn't disqualify you from following Jesus. Just like being a sinner doesn't disqualify you from following Jesus. There's nothing you could do to make him love you more or love you less. He loves you unconditionally. I know it's one thing to say, simply put your faith in Jesus, but we want to give you a next step to do that. We want to give you an application point. We like to call the back end of our application points on a Sunday our four Mondays because we believe what's the point in coming to church on Sunday if it's not going to impact you, it's not going to change you for Monday. And this week's four Monday is this. Get to know more about the one who loves you unconditionally. Get to know the more about the one who loves you unconditionally. Because to trust someone, you must first know that someone in any relationship. A relationship is grown through knowing someone better. And I bet some of the best, some of the greatest relationships you have are with the people in your life that you trust. They're the ones that you know, know you best. That know you best even at the times when you know you're at your worst. The ones that see you for more than just your mistakes, more than just your faults, more than just your errors, more than just your failures. These people in your life who love you and know you for who you really are. That's why tonight I really could have put anything inside of this gift. But in light of the people in our life that know us best, these are the people that make sacrifices for us. What is inside the box tonight? This is a photo that my nan actually did for my 18th, and it's a photo of me from when I was very, very little. 
but in everything my nan knows me as and everything that she did and the sacrifices she's made in her life to show that she loves me. She has done it out of this unwillingness, desire to show me unconditional love. There are people in our life who make the big sacrifices. People in our life that do things for us, that listen to us, that come to us when we're at our worst and even come to us when we're at our best. When we get to know these people, we put ourselves in a spot. We actually get to know more about ourselves. Know more about relationships, but an opportunity to get to know more about God. And in light of that, you have an opportunity this week to get to know more about the one who created you, the one who loves you unconditionally. Identifying what he's actually placed in front of you. What he's placed in front of you in light of your career, what he's placed in front of you in light of your study opportunity, what he's placed in front of you in light of your friendships, in light of your relationships, in light of your family too. You have an opportunity this week to actually get to know more about the one who loves you. To spend time with him this week is one of the greatest ways we can go about it. It's by spending time and actually being thankful. So I want to give you a question to think about as you step into your week and into your Monday too. And the question is this. What or who are you thankful for? What or who am I thankful for? In light of the people in your life that have been placed in front of you, in light of the people that make the sacrifices that they do to build you up and not to pull you down, who are those in your life that you are thankful for? What does that mean in light of the story that's being written for you? What does that mean in light of how your life has been blessed? Because in order to trust someone, you must first know that someone and a relationship is grown through knowing someone better. The value of a life, the value of a life is always measured by how much of it was given away. The relationship with your Heavenly Father does not point back to all the good things that you have done, all the good things that you will do. It doesn't point back to all your strengths, nor does it point back to all your wrongs doesn't point back to all your mistakes, all the errors, all the fault, all the anxiety, the stress, the depression, all the rest. It doesn't point back to the darkness. God didn't come to barter a 20% price on the fact of your life, even though it has some damage, even though there are things that you're not proud of, even though there are things that bring you shame and bring you so much guilt, even though there are some ugly spots, some things missing even though there are some things within you that you know and you feel like nobody else would ever want. The price was paid in full by Jesus. A price paid in full on the cross as a pure gift, a brand new starting point, a relationship with a God who sees you as a masterpiece. He sees you as completely unique. You were created to be unique. There is no one on this planet like you. There's no one on this planet who has ever lived or whoever will live that is like you. That being a masterpiece, being unique, means you are one of a kind. You can't fairly compare or measure someone who is one of a kind with someone else who is one of a kind. To be unique is to be beyond compare. You are beyond compare. And you could do whatever you wanted to in your life, there are so many things that can pull you so many different ways. 
can pull you back into the pits. You feel like you're in a mess again. But to overcome our tendency to measure whether or not we are good enough. We need to stop looking to others to tell us that we are okay. Stop looking to others to tell us whether or not we are relevant. And actually take that from the one who created us. Be measured by the one who loves us and the one who died for us. That a relationship with your heavenly father is completely measured not by what you do for him, but what he has given for you. You may see yourself as broken, but there is a heavenly father who sees you as a masterpiece. I'd love to pray and then we're going to walk through a time of communion together. God, we just thank you for the people in our life, Lord. The people in our life that you've placed there. You've placed there as a sacrifice in the times when we need someone to talk to, in the times when we need someone that we can fall back on. It's people in our life, Lord, that you've set up, that you've shown us that there's a grand plan in front of us, Lord. God, we know there's times when we can get so caught up in the anxiety and the stress of life. Lord, there's so many times when we can look to the world around us and see no good, Lord. It's so easy at times to see the darkness around us and the relationships that we have with others, Lord, but also within our own private world too. I just pray that in those times, Lord, we cannot press into trying to save ourselves, to try and fix our mistakes, Lord, to try and make up for what we've done. But Lord, we can rest and find peace and be still in knowing that who you've made us to be, who you've made us to be is unique, that we are beyond compare. Lord, who you see us as is a living miracle, that you see us as a masterpiece so much that you sent one and only son to come down and write himself into the mess, Lord, to die for us so we can be in a perfect relationship with you, Lord. We thank you. We pray these things in your name. Amen.